Friday night, my wife is, is kind of hungry, and she's like, I don't know, what do I want something? So she goes and she decides to make bacon, because she's godly, okay? <laughs> she, goes, she goes to make bacon, she makes it in this like big pot, right? And, and she puts a timer and does it, and then she's sitting there playing her words with friends. If you're a words with friends, stop playing with her, because it distracts her from making the bacon. <laughs> so she goes back, and the thing goes off, she finally goes over and checks it out, and it's like overcooked, it's all like, you know, bacon bits, I mean, I like bacon where it's like, it's like, oink, oink. I'm like, that's when you eat it. It's all nice and flimsy and chewy. Oh, man. When you got to go get the antibiotics when you're done eating it, that's the bacon. You can be ungodly. It's okay. I just remember in the book of Acts. God sets this thing before Peter, and Peter, I'm not going to eat all that unclean food. And God says, don't you dare call unclean what I made clean. And I said, I'm just following God's advice to Peter. Yeah. I have no idea why I told you that. But it was fun. So, uh, I had a lady come to me before first service today, and I, we, we haven't been able to research her story or what's going on, but I'm just going to throw this out to you. Um, apparently, she was in an abusive relationship. She ended up at uh, Domestic Violence Solutions, and she is now trying to get her kids back because of all the stuff that kind of happened to her. So, she's going to uh, some court things this week. She needs a retainer for a lawyer, so they're doing a barbecue today. And if you are interested in going to pick up a chicken winter, winter, chicken dinner for lunch uh, at Walder Park today. Go figure after the rain, right? Um, at Walder Park today, there'll be a sign-up for instance, barbecue, and they're selling some chicken dinners to help pay for her attorney's fees. And again, we haven't researched it. We don't know anything about it, you know, being true or false or not, but we just want to be able to throw that out to you. And so if you're looking uh, to go help somebody, you could actually do that. Um, a couple things. Uh, after, usually after my messages, you know, we do this thing where there's people who pray for other people in the hallway in the back. And some of you guys, not pointing fingers, Cameron Stanley, uh, not pointing fingers, <laughs> like to, like to go hang out in the hallway. And it's like, the, now, we, we don't have really a prayer room, and we don't really have a lot of room, so what we would like to do is, after the message, if you need to stretch your legs, you know, go in the back, grab it, come back and sit down, but don't kind of hang out in the hallway, because we want to leave that open to people who might need prayer. All right? We good? I said that last service, and there were like three people hanging out in the hallway, and I'm like, whatever, nobody listens, but... Um, also, our gospel class starts the first week of February. Uh, if you are new or newer to Element and you want to know more about who we are, if you ever want to become a member at Element, you're required to go through the gospel class. It's eight weeks, uh, and it tells you everything that we believe. So that by the end of it, you know, you're not here for like, you know, a year and you become a member. You're like, ha, I didn't know they believed that stuff. Those were some crazy people. Well, we want you to know everything we believe up front. So the class is eight weeks. It covers basic Christian theology as well as what we believe uh, God has given us as our vision and element. So it starts a second service, so the 930 service. So you can still go to that and get here. I know, God forbid, you got to get up any earlier, right? But you can get up and go to that and then come to this service, and you're all going to be fine doing that. Um, Lastly, uh, I was talking to somebody this week, and they pointed something out to me, and, and I feel really bad about it, but there has been times in my messages in the last year that I haven't cited all of my sources, and I've taken some place, some chunks out of different things, and, and I presented it to you. I don't want you to ever think that I'm trying to make myself smarter than I am. 
Okay? I mean, all my ideas in my head, it's like, I don't have an original idea in my head. I steal everything from everywhere. But if you ever want to know where anything we talk about comes from, because I would love for you guys to listen to the same podcast, especially the one on video games that I listen to. If you like to read the same books, uh, if you would like to know anything where all this stuff comes from, ask me. We'd love to give it to you. We've got nothing to hide. We want you to kind of all be on the same page with us. So if you've ever noticed that I've done something like that and not cited something correctly, I'm sorry. I just want to throw that out there. Now, uh, if you are new to Element, there are Bibles in the back. If you don't own one, you can have one. If you forgot one, you can use one. Uh, there are sermon notes all throughout the communion tables, uh, throughout the room. Inside of those, you will get notes and questions to go along with the message. On the back, there are some announcements. If you have a smartphone, you can download an app. It is called Version. Click on Live in Version. It will bring us up by GPS in your smartphone, and you will get the sermon notes and the verses and questions and all that goes along with today's message. And my name is Aaron. I'm one of the pastors here, so welcome. Won't you stand with me? The reading of God's word. This is John chapter 1, verse 8, and it says this. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. Let's pray. Father, this morning I ask that you would take us as a people and teach us to understand not just the depth of our sin, but also the goodness and the grace of who you are. That we would live fully understanding what our lostness was and being found by you. And that our lives would change because of the love of our gracious Father who has sought us and brought us home. Amen. Have a seat. So this is my heads up to you for the coming year. We're going to do something we have never done before at Element. We're going to do an entire year of topical studies. You, yeah. I love topical studies because Aaron can just drone on about verses for a really long time. Now, topical studies are where we cover a topic, hence the topical studies, we, we do other things called expository. Expository is verse by verse. Like, you know, we, we try to alternate between the two, but then we hit Genesis, and it's a year and a half. We hit Sermon on the Mountain, it's a year. So, and then we get even to like Luke 15, the passage we're looking at now, and we take five weeks to go through it. So really, our topicals become expository. So it's just, it's just how it works around here. Uh, we spend a lot of time in the scriptures because we believe the scriptures are very important. And so we're doing this series called The Prodigal God. It's taking off a title of Tim Keller's book called The Prodigal God. And if you want a book to read and go along with this series, it's a great book to pick up. It's nice and small and easy to read with a lot of great information in it. And some people freak out because Tim Keller book and we're calling our series the prodigal god because of the term prodigal a lot of people have negative connotations with this word eric talked about this a little bit last week that there's different definitions to this word prodigal it can mean wasteful and reckless like the son who ran away from his father's home but it can also mean referring to god lavishly abundant it can mean that our god has been reckless in his love and his grace to us that it doesn't mean that God doesn't call us to something different or something greater in our lives, that he doesn't change us. It means that God has been reckless in his grace and how he calls us all home. It's really a beautiful concept. So open your Bibles to Luke chapter 15. It's page 568. If you have an element Bible, you are welcome. And so far, we have looked at the lost sheep, the lost coin, the younger son. Today, we're going to look at the older son. Next week, we're going to look at the father. And the last week, we're going to look at who we are in the midst of the story. Uh, I can tell you that like Tim Keller and John Ortberg and uh, Kenneth Bailey and even Henry Nowen have really shaped how I see uh, Luke chapter 15. 
Uh, and it's really important to notice how this whole thing begins. So Luke uh, chapter 15, starting in verse 1. I know you looked at it two weeks ago. We're just going to briefly hit this. Jesus says, Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to him, that's Jesus, and the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. If you fast forward to the end of Luke 15, it's really interesting because the father is eating with his son. There's a party, and the older son is grumbling on the outside. Uh, It all ties together. Right now, this is a really touchy moment in Jesus' ministry. And there's three main people or main groups you kind of look at in this. Number one, there's Jesus, because Jesus is always first. Secondly, there's the people who are the sinners that it talks about. Now, these would be obvious sinners, like prostitutes and tax collectors and people who make pop-up ads for the Internet and people who drive down Broadway with country music blaring out their windows, you know. The, the people the Sermon on the Mount calls the poor in spirit, okay? That's who we're talking which is really, in a sense, all of us, right? But then you get to the third group, and, you, and these are the Pharisees, the religious ones, the teachers of the law, who are also poor in spirit. They just don't see themselves as being poor in spirit. Now, anybody here ever watch Saturday morning cartoons? Okay, so you remember these things like uh, a noun is? So three of you actually watch them, Okay. And then, go, and, then, and then you have conjunction, junction. Okay, does anybody remember? I tried this last service. Nobody did. Anybody remember the one about verbs? What is it? It goes like, it goes, verbs, that's what's happening. Verbs. No? You guys need to watch more cartoons. I think Jesus. So, so what you have to look at in the story... I just lost all you, didn't I? So you look up in the story as you look at the verbs, what's going on. You see Jesus is teaching, the sinners are gathering, and the Pharisees are grumbling. That's what's happening. Okay, that's what's happening in the story. And the Pharisees say, this man receives sinners and eats with them. Now, they know who Jesus is, they know his name, but they're using a derogatory term, this this man. It's like when conservatives say, like, oh, those empty-headed liberals, or liberals say, oh, those cold-hearted conservatives. It's just throwing labels around. They're like, this guy, he waters down the faith. He, he has too much grace. He just wants everybody. There's something wrong with that guy over there. He takes anybody in. So it's kind of like a tense moment. And so people are watching what Jesus is going to do. How is he going to respond? Is he going to stop with his grace stance? Is, is he going to put sinners in their place and stand with the good people? And what you saw Paul Mills talked about two weeks ago is how Jesus kind of starts this off. And he tells two stories start to bring this together. They're kind of the same, but they're different. Luke 15, verse 4, he says, What man of you having a hundred sheep, if he has lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it? And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders. Now, it's interesting that he lays it on his shoulders because what would happen if a sheep in that culture kept running off all the time, eventually the shepherd would catch that sheep and he'd snap its leg. Then he would bind in that, that leg up and he would carry it around with him for weeks until that leg was whole enough for that sheep to stand on. Then he put the sheep down and the sheep wouldn't wander from his side ever again. So he's got it on his shoulders, right? And he's rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. Now, do his friends rejoice with him? Yes! Where were you when Paul Mills taught this two weeks ago? Come on. Yes, they rejoice. See, you guys don't understand, right? Because you lose your keys all the time. And you're always calling. Do I leave my keys at your house? Where are my keys? And you find me all, yay! And your friend's like, do it all the time. We don't care. All right? So you don't, you don't get it. 
Right. The second story in Luke 15, verse 8, Or what woman, having ten silver coins, if she loses one coin, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and seek diligently until she finds it? And when she has found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors, saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the coin that I had lost. I'll give you one more chance here. Do they rejoice with her? Yes! yes that's the response I was looking for. The crowd's like, of course they do. It's like, any reason to throw a party. Woo! We're going to get together. It's going to be fun. It's going to be amazing. And Jesus ends both of these with essentially the same thing in verse 10. Just so I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Now, the crowd's hearing this. They're going to be like, that's amazing. He's talking about me. I was the lost coin. I was the lost sheep. Jesus is the one who has sought and he has found me. He's telling him all heaven rejoices over that. When people come home, when they live in God's, when they follow God, this is all heaven rejoices over this. And Jesus also says that he is the one who is seeking them, just like the lost coin, just like the lost sheep. Now, the Pharisees, they don't like this. This is very confrontational for them. Uh, Tim Keller quotes the Lord of the Rings and the prodigal God. And he says, so whose side is Jesus on? In the Lord of the Rings, when the hobbits ask the ancient tree beard whose side he is on, he answers, I am not altogether on anybody's side because nobody is altogether on my side. But there are some things, of course, whose side I am altogether not on. Timothy Keller said, this is the idea that Jesus is not on the side of the irreligious or the religious. He's on his own side, God's side, who seeks out his people and brings them home. That's what side he is on. John Orbrick says about this passage that when Jesus says these things, he's telling them what you're seeing by these people coming and following God is you're seeing the work of God in these people's lives which gets you to story number three. And it's kind of even more in their face. It's like the first two, but it's different. Verse 11 says, and he said, that can be translated also, and he continued connecting it with the other ones. There was a man who had two sons. Now it's connected, but this is a different story because it's not about you know a sheep or a coin. This is about people. This man had two sons. Now, the, the first son, you know, Eric did a great job last week covering it. I kind of felt really self-conscious this week because he did such a good and scholarly job that I'm like, hope I don't jack this thing up this week. But so you go back and listen to that if you missed it, right? I'm, I'll briefly tell you if you weren't here. Uh, basically, uh, this is the story of the prodigal, the lost son, the son that runs away. He's the rebel. He goes to his dad. He says, give me my inheritance. Then he runs off and he squanders the whole thing. He hits bottom. He gets desperate. He comes back home thinking, I'll just work as a slave in my dad's house. But the father's like, you're going to have none of that, none of that. And he welcomes his son back as a full son, as a full member of the family. He throws a party. He butchers the fattened calf, which is why the story is often called the parable of the prodigal son. But in context of Luke 15, what you really need to get to is the second half of this story when it gets to the older son. Because as Paul Harvey used to like to say, this is the rest of the story. It's the older brother. And again, you've got Jesus teaching, sinners gathering, Pharisees grumbling, where does Jesus go? Luke 15, verse 25. Now his older son was in the field, and as he came, near, came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. And he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, your brother has come home, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has received him back safe and sound. But he was angry and refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him. But, his, but he answered his father, Look, these many years I have served you, and I have never disobeyed your command. Yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. And he said to him, My son, you are always with me. 
and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad, for this your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. Now, one of the things that's really amazing about Jesus' parables is that we can almost all find ourselves as someone in one of these stories. I think one of the ways that tells you a lot about your spiritual walk and where you are is who you identify with in any given story. There's this old story, you probably heard it, Maybe not, but a Sunday school class, and there's a teacher, and she's teaching her kids the prodigal son story. And at the end, she asks the question. She says, there was one in the story that the return of the brother brought no rejoicing, only resentment and bitterness. Who was it? And one of the kids raises their hand, and they say, the fattened calf? (laughs) Maybe not, okay. Everybody can identify with somebody in the story. I mean, most of us, if you spend time thinking about it, we all like to think we're the prodigal son. And that God has has run to us and loved us. But the more we think about it, I think most of us can identify with the older brother. I think that's really where we go. Because the longer you call yourself a Christian, the harder you work. The more that you're following, it's hard. I'm going to follow Jesus and I'm going to show him how I'm going to do everything right. And you work really, really, we work a lot like the older brother. I was talking to my friend uh, David Albert about this, and he, and he just kind of throws this, and I was like, this, that's an, I'm going to videotape you saying this. So this is my friend David Albert's story, and I wanted you guys to see it because it goes with this so, so well. And I know everybody likes the story about the prodigal son, but growing up, it was not my favorite story. In fact, I, I really did not like that story because the story is basically about two brothers. Um, you got a, a good, faithful older brother, and then you've got a little brat who's younger. The younger brother basically just caused agony for the parent. It reminded me a lot of my brother. I mean, there was a lot of, there's a lot of times, my, my brother was uncontrollable. He caused a lot of agony for my mom. I mean, there would be a lot of times where she would be crying because he was out of control. The younger brother got exactly what he want. He basically was a jerk to his dad. Um, took the money and basically traded in the relationship with his father for the money. I felt like ending up with the pigs is exactly where it should have been. I can't ever remember a time not knowing Jesus, but I would say for a good portion of my life, actually the majority of my life, I loved religion more than I loved Jesus because religion was about obeying the rules. And I knew how to obey the rules. I knew how to go to church. I knew how to play church. I knew how to pray. I knew how to sit through the sermon. That's something my brother couldn't do. You basically have the older brother, me, who was faithful. I mean, I worked hard. I had a good work ethic. Um, I went to church. I did what I was told for the most part. And then you have my brother, who's constantly getting into trouble. So in the story, you know, when the younger brother comes back, the father sees him from a distance. You know, if it were me, if I were the father, I'd be crossing my arms, writing down my list of I told you so's. And instead, the father picks up and runs after him and throws his arm around. Now, where's the older brother? He's out in the field, faithfully working. See, I can I could relate to that because the older brother has never left the father. He's never abandoned him. He's never a jerk to the father. He was always there. And yet, what happens? The father accepts the younger brother back. The um, They slaughter a fattened calf for the younger brother. They have a huge old party because he's back after he's been so disobedient. And the older brother, I don't know, I, I, I felt for the older brother because what party did he get? Most of the reason I had an issue of, with it was because I was prideful. I was religious. I felt like 
I deserved it. You know, I deserved the party. It was my good works equals God's favor or equals favor. And that's the thing about a religious person, I feel, is like, if you're religious, then the good things that do help happen to you, you feel like kind of God owes it to you or that you deserve it. I mean, I felt like that was the point of the story, but nobody else felt like that because I am the older brother. See, we can all identify with someone in the story. All of us can. I, I think we understand the older brother almost intuitively. Because we look at them and think, yeah, I, I work hard. That, that's, that's how it should be. I mean, one person said, when you cease to be the younger brother, you actually either become more like the father or more like the older brother. That's really one of the two choices we get. You go one way or the other. I mean, and this, this is the climax of the story. Everything Jesus is building towards is, is right here. And you got Jesus and the, and the sinners and then the arrogant, prideful, religious people. And so what does he do? He talks about the lost sheep and the lost coin, and this parable of the prodigal son who comes home, and his father throws a big party. But there is one other son who is so bent on trying to just follow the rules that he will not enter the party, and he will not enter the joy. He stands out in the field, he starts heading home, and he hears the music and dance, and he's like irritated right off the bat. I mean, if the story really happened, the whole village would be at this party. It's a community event. Everybody in the village would have known the younger son ran off. They would have all known that he came back and the father had welcomed him. The party's a public event. Everybody is there. And if the older brother was living like the father, the older brother would have been at that party welcoming his brother home. But he doesn't. I mean, what you see is that he's suspicious. He starts walking up. Here's the music and dancing. Oh, what's going on over there? People are happy. Why are people happy? People shouldn't be happy. What's wrong with that? And he says, and he grabs somebody. What's going on? Oh, your brother has come home. I knew it. I knew people were having fun, and they shouldn't be. I mean, that's still, he refuses to go inside. Now, uh, a, lot of, a lot of commentaries all have the same three points about the older brother. Some actually are going to steal those and use those. But the mark of an older brother is a heart, number one, that is full of resentment. It's full of resentment. He resents his brother for leaving. He resents his brother for coming home. It's like, you can't win with this guy. He resents his father for embracing him. And all of this shows itself in that he will not go into the party. He will not enter into the joy. I won't dance. I'm not going to sing. I won't enjoy myself. I mean, all throughout Luke 15, what does Jesus keep coming back to? Joy, 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 joy. Why? The lost thing has been found. It's home. Let's have some joy. And the people who aren't having any part of that is the religious leaders. Are the people just like the older brother? I mean, Jesus says, in the same way I tell you, there's rejoicing in the presence of the angels of God. Why? Shepherd found the lost sheep, which is you. Woman found her lost coin, which is you. The prodigal comes home. There's joy because you've been found by this father. Oh, there's so much joy. Everyone's happy except for one guy, the older brother. I mean, the person you would expect to be most joyful because their brother came home. Kenneth Bailey has written numerous books about this. He's got a whole book on just the parable of the prodigal son. Now the book called Poet and Peasant. They're excellent, excellent books on Middle Eastern culture. And he talks about how in this kind of formal gathering, the older brother should have walked in the house and started serving people. It was an honor-bound society. And so, you would, so they have the older brother come in and serve everybody at the party as a way of saying that you are so honored that my son is going to serve you. But the older brother has nothing, nothing to do with that. 
Kenneth Bailey points out that the younger son, when he heard his dad, he did it in a way that was private. He didn't just make it public. I mean, it became public, but it wasn't just a public spectacle to begin with. He says the older brother is deliberately choosing to expose his father to public humiliation. And the whole village would see this. I mean, you live in 2015, so so you don't really understand this, but this is like a, a slap in the face in this culture. The older son is insulting his father much more openly and defiantly than the younger brother ever had. And in, in a strange way, I almost think the younger brother might enjoy that resentment a little bit. It might even be a little bit fun, in a sense, for him. Because resentment starts to make you feel superior, that you're better than other people. You get to bemoan how horrible everybody else is and how well you have it all together. You get to sit outside the party with your arms full and be like, I'm not going to sing. Let them dance. No one knows how hard I worked. Oh, poor me. I mean, baby. I mean, seriously. Seriously. He's just all caught up in himself. It's, it feeds his own sense of self-righteous superiority that he will not go inside. He just wants to stew and sit on it. You know, when Nelson, Nelson Mandela was released out of prison in South Africa, a lot of people asked, you know, are you going to take retribution? Do you want revenge? And he said no. And, and they said, why? And he said, he said, resentment is like drinking poison expecting to kill your enemies. Which led another writer to say resentment is like a meal, but you don't realize you're feasting on your own soul. See, someone cheats you. Someone hurts you. Someone sticks a knife in you somewhere at some point, and they just twist it. And, and you step away from that. You're like, I can't believe this person did that. And you just stew on that. And you sit on top of that. And it just gets so deep inside of you that anything that person does in the future, you just don't like what they say, what they do, what they mean, anything. And little by little... Your joy and your grace and your patience are bled out of you. I know it takes time, but we must be a people who learn to let it go. The second mark of someone like the older brother is complaining. The father goes out to talk to his son. Verse 28, his father came out and entreated him. This is the words like plead or beg. That's what that would mean. But he answered his father, look, these many years I have served you and I have never disobeyed your command. Now, what the audience would hear is that the older son doesn't call their dad father. He omits the title of respect. Again, we don't get this today because you guys have kids and they call you horrible names all the time. It's like, you know, fatty, dummy, meanie. Jim Gaffigan wrote this book called Dad is Fat based off of one of these pictures that his kids drew of him. And he's like, here's, here's Jim Gaffigan. It says, Dad is fat. You know, it's like in the Middle Eastern culture, that would never happen. It would just never, ever happen. And what you even see is with the younger brother, I mean, even when he gets his money and he leaves, and you look in verse 12 of chapter 15, he still uses the term father when he addresses his dad. He still pays that much respect to his dad, not the older brother. Now, the whole village, again, they're present for this party. It's a public event. So this conversation probably starts to become a public conversation. It's like you're all, la, 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 this party's great. Oh, what's that argument over there? Ooh. And everybody's paying attention. Everybody's watching. And what happens? He says, look, these many years I have served you. It's like I've been working as a slave for you. And I have never disobeyed your command. Now, we call this incongruity, which is another word for irony. Okay? Because he says, I never disobeyed a single command, yet he's at this moment publicly defying his father at a public event by refusing to join the party. He says this even though he's defying his father's deepest wish that he would love his brother. I've never disobeyed a single command. When the truth is, maybe he's never obeyed one, at least from his heart, and that's what matters. See, the older brother only sees it all about conformity. It's only about following the rules. 
Obedience is not a bad word, but obedience comes out of love for Christ. That's where obedience comes from. Conformity comes out of following the rules. And when you're just in conformity, you're going to be eaten up by pride and jealousy and bitterness. You're going to be self-righteous. You're going to be sarcastic all the time. You're going to be judgmental. The love is going to just leak out of you. You're not going to have any for anybody. I mean, Kenneth Bailey points out that this kid is farther from his father at home than his brother was a thousand miles away. He walks around, I'm the righteous. Oh, I'm the good one. I've never disobeyed a single command. I mean, it's his lostness here, his own blindness to his own lostness that's, that's killing him. I mean, this is what religious legalism does to people. We think we've got it all together, but we are so far away from the heart of the Father. His complaint, all these years, I've been slaving away for you, yet you never gave me a young goat that I may celebrate with my friends. Now, this story is told in an economic context, as a lot of Jesus' parables are, right? And so what you see, at, Eric talked about this last week, is everything that's left really is the older brothers. So his anger is more like the idea of you're taking away my money, my inheritance, my fattened calf, and giving it to that guy. You're going to throw a party for him, and you want me to be happy about it? What's the father's response? Yep, come to the party. Let's go. Woo! It's kind of funny. It really is, because these guy's so angry. I mean, he's just not going to be happy at all. Now, my wife is a nurse, and she works at the hospital, and she sees all kinds of stuff. And we have amazing technology today. I mean, the, the, the mortality rate today is so much lower than it was 100 years ago. And yet we all just complain. Everybody complains all the time. You think we'd be grateful. People are always complaining. Oh, the bed's too hard. Oh, the meds give me gas. You know, oh, the doctors aren't nice enough. Oh, the food isn't, doesn't taste good enough. Like the food at the hospital is supposed to taste good. They want you to go home. <laughs> they don't want you to stay there forever. I mean, we're just, we walk around like we're entitled to complain. But in reality, if you follow Jesus, we are entitled to be gracious. One of the things I love how John Ortberg ties this whole chapter together is he, is he brings down this thing. He says, he says, so what I want you guys to do, he says, is I want you guys to learn how to not to complain this week. This whole week, don't utter one complaint. Then he goes, one day, just try one day not to utter, you know, a single complaint. You're not about your job, not about your home, not, not about the spouse you wish you have or the spouse you do have. And I would add the kids you wish you had to the kids you don't have. You know, you know, the, you know all that. Just no complaining about anything. And a lot of times people have a hard time with that because it's really, really hard. But when you start to do that and not complain, you realize how much you must rely on God's spirit. Because we so naturally want to complain. Conformity, following the rules, that leads to places that are easy, easy to complain. But when you love and follow out of obedience, it's a whole different story. I mean, this, the third mark of the older brother goes to this. It is judgmentalism. Judgmentalism. He's like, all these years, I've been slaving away for you. I've never disobeyed. You wouldn't give me a young goat to celebrate with my friends. And then he gets to it in verse 30. But when this son of yours... He doesn't say my brother, right? What he's doing by his words is he's, dis- he's distancing himself from his family. You know, I'm, it's not, I'm not your son. He's not my brother. I'm, I'm way out here. And again, his self-assessment is, I've never disobeyed a single command. That's a self-assessment. I mean, judgment is not pointing out something that somebody else has done wrong. You know, we all need that in our lives. We need someone to come up next to us and say, you're being a knucklehead. Let's help you figure this out. Judging is when you stand back and you just lob your bombs in about how wrong they are and how messed up they are. And you stand way back here just kind of going, oh, yeah, look at that. Oh, look, that's judgmentalism. 
I mean, this is, this is what the, the brother says. But when the son of yours came who devoured your property with prostitutes. Did Jesus say that? No. No. In verse 13, he says, There he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, he never says anything about prostitutes. But the older brother kind of throws it in like he's trying to smear his younger brother. Maybe he's thinking what he would do if he ran off with all that money. You know, who, who knows? I mean, John Ortberg writes this. He says, Sometimes the truth is that under the surface, deep in the heart, there is not nearly as big a difference between the rebel and the rule keeper as the rule keeper would like to believe. I mean, Proverbs 18.8, The words of a gossip are like choice morsels. They go down to the inward parts. Anybody ever hear of gossip in a church? I, every service I said, everybody laughs. It's like, oh, yeah, me, you know, there we go. You know what feeds it? It is the heart that says, I have never disobeyed a single command. That's what feeds that. We are so blind to our blindness. Timothy Keller says, it's natural for younger brothers to think older brotherness and Christianity are the same thing. I mean, we have got to get clear on this, that living like the older brother and living for Jesus are diametrically opposed to one another. Living like an older brother has no grace. It's only filled with judgment, which kind of leads to where we're going next week. You know, the father comes out to his son and he pleads. In Jesus' day, this would be surprising to the hearers. Everybody's like, that's not what a father does. That's not how that works. They'd expect this father to disown this kid. Say, you know what? It's gone. You have no, get get out of my house. You are just done. But it doesn't. This father goes out and he pleads with his son like somebody without any power. It's like no father would do that. And even when the son rejects this pleading, insults him, refuses to address him as father, he does not give up. In verse 31, Son, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. The word son there, it means my child. It's a very tender form of the word. It's not normally used. And what you see with the prodigal son and the older son, the prodigal, the father runs out, and before the eyes of the village, the father takes upon himself the pain, the shame, the humiliation of his defiant rebel. But the father also goes out onto the porch and takes upon himself the pain, the humiliation, and the defiancy of his older son as well. He treats both these kids the same. And it's like he's saying, you know, you guys are my sons. Do you not realize to live at home with me is my greatest gift I can give you? It's not, it's not the inheritance. It's not the land. It's not the house. It's not the money. Christians, it's not heaven. The greatest gift is me. That's what he says. And we so often miss it. It's like, oh, I got my fire insurance. Oh, I'm going to. It is about living with him. That's the point of the parable. The father is infinitely gracious, but the father will also not allow these kids to change who he is and what he does. He will not apologize for his grace. He doesn't allow his older son and that anger to stop the party. It is what it is. He expects the children that live in his home to have joy, to be excited about those who come home. In verse 32, he says, It was fitting to celebrate and be glad, for this your brother was dead. He says, Your brother. He points it back out. Not my son, your brother. And is alive. He was lost and is found. He says, You're still family. And it's not too late. You get to live as beloved son, just like him, in my house, in the party. Why don't you come inside? Why don't you come inside? 
You can rejoice with your brother. We can be a family. Now, what does the audience see and hear as Jesus gets to the end of this? How did they respond? We don't know. We don't, I'm sure there are some in the crowd, and they're really excited. This is amazing. Jesus just says that you know, God is seeking me, and he's looking for me, and he's calling me home. And Jesus has just come alongside and lifted me up and protected me in the eyes of these religious people. This is great. And I'm sure there's religious people there who are very angry and furious and want to kill Jesus, and eventually they do that. But I think they're all waiting to see what happens next in the story. How's it going to end? How do you round this out? What does the older brother do? And Jesus stops. He stops the story. He ends it with the father's words. It is fitting to celebrate and be glad. He was lost and is found. Why? Because it was fitting to be glad, to rejoice, to enter the party, to be excited. Because he was lost and he's found. I mean, that's how he ends it. It's not because Jesus couldn't think of a good ending for the story. It's that that's the best ending you come up with. Because it really only ends in two ways. Number one, the the older brother turns away from his father, walks back out to the field, works in bitterness and anger his entire life, and when he dies, he dies alone. Or his heart is broken, and the calluses are ripped off of his heart. And he's like, my father is amazing. And he walks into the party, and he celebrates with everybody else. The question for us is, how do you want it to end? What do you want it to look like? What ending are you excited for? What ending would you like to see in the story? Because following Jesus, it's about loving him. Real obedience is the opposite of conformity. It's kind of like Eric talked about last week, that this whole thing foreshadows the cross of Christ, the grace of who he is. And what you see is that Jesus pays an enormous price to extend grace to his lost, blind, self-righteous, angry children. That's what you see. That it's not just the wayward ones who need it. It is all of us. Those who have been following Jesus for a year, 10 years, 20 years, 30 years, 40 years. We all need that grace. We all need that surrender. We all need to live in that hope. That's, what he, that's the point of the parable. That the Father is the same. Both kids, your joy, the gift given to you... Is a life with him. That's the gift. That's the gift. I mean, he calls us to be a people to understand that gift. And I think when we understand it truly and correctly, that is what brings about real and righteous surrender in our lives. That's when we understand it, because we understand his grace and his goodness. I mean, that's what brings us to communion every single week. It's an understanding that Jesus has sought us out as his lost. Either we're standing on the porch or we're running away in a faraway country. And yet he has come and extended his grace to us. He has called us. He has purchased us. He has bought us. And that's why you break that cracker like his body was broken for us. You dip it in the wine of the grape juice. Reminds us of his blood that was shed for you and me. That takes away the sin. All the stuff that separated us from God is taken away. All that separates us from us and each other, like the younger and the older brother, all that stuff between them is taken away in the cross of Christ. It's all gone. Jesus rises to new life. He raises us to new life so we can live in fullness and wholeness of who he is. It's beautiful. The parable of the prodigal son, I mean, it is, Eric called last week, the gospel in the gospel. You know, that's 
I know he uses technical words, but whatever, you know, I'm close enough, right? Gospel and the gospel. I like those words better. So the band's going to come up, as they do. We invite you to come and take communion. Be some deacons and elders in the back. And if you need prayer, maybe, maybe you've been living like the wayward son, or maybe you've been living like the older son, thinking you're like the wayward son. You know, or maybe you're just the older son, period. They would love to pray with you. They would love to talk to you. Because our hope and prayer at Element is that we would all learn to live and reflect more of the Father. That we, day by day by day by day, would show who He is with our lives more and more and more. I mean, He calls us. He calls us. You know, to be imitators of God as dearly loved children. Well, that's what we want to be. It's offering boxes in the sidewall in the back, and we give because God gives so much to us. Giving is simply part of our worship. We don't pass a plate. Uh, it's just a response to what he's done. There's some food in the back. We invite you to grab something to eat, meet some other people, because God does save you individually, but he intends for you to live that life of salvation out communally with other people. And because when you're a knucklehead older brother running off like a, like a crazy nut job, you need people around you to say, hey, buddy, you're a big knucklehead. Knock it off. We all need that. I think the more that you, that you live alone with your head stuck like in a book and never looking up at anybody else, the more you're going to become like the older brother. We need each other. And it's one of the reasons why we push gospel community so strongly at Element. We believe all of you need to be in community with one another. We all need to be honest and open enough in that community to share when each other are acting like the older brother and not like the father. I mean, our hearts need to be broken, our calluses need to be ripped off so that we begin to feel the Spirit move and talk and lead and guide us into the party so we have joy, the joy that God intends for His people to share. Let's pray. Father, this morning I ask that you would teach us to learn how to be a people of immense joy. Even in the midst of our pain and our brokenness and our heartaches, that your joy... would move through those things and change us so that we become those who are excited to enter the party and bring everybody else with us that we can. Father, we know deep down in our roots sometimes that we have this sin nature that so fights. It's like a poison at our roots. And so often we confuse self-righteous conformity with Jesus' loving obedience. So teach us to understand obedience in the right light. Coming out of our understanding of your grace. That we would be a people who live understanding the depth of your love for us. And that would in turn change everything we do, how we see the world around us, how we see people around us. And that we would trust you more, more every day. That our lives would be reflective of the great grace that you have shown to us. That we would live as dearly loved children, imitators of you, so the world would know what our Father is like. We ask this in your Son's good name. Amen.